What would make a perfect church? What would make a perfect church? What would make the kind of church that you would really want to be a part of? And where would you go to find this kind of church? Would you Google it? Some of you did. Would you look for successful pastors? Maybe heroic missionaries? Others may look to a denomination or a movement. Some have given up altogether. And they've decided that the way to a perfect church is to try to not actually be a church as much as possible. And the great temptation that we find in our world today is that to be or make the perfect church, we should follow this innovative idea or this happening fad. But what exactly makes a church good, great, the kind of place where we want to be? It's no small question. And it might be a surprise to you to know that it's a question many believe that they have the answer to. Just take a small sample of books recently written about the church. Breakout churches. Discover how to make the leap. Simple church. Rethinking God's process for making disciples. The emotionally healthy church. Updated and expanded edition. A strategy for discipleship that actually changes lives. Analog church. Why we need real people, places, and things in the digital age. Reappearing church. The hope for renewal in the rise of our post-Christian culture. Comeback churches. How 300 churches turned around and yours can too. And the most recent, the post-quarantine church. Six urgent challenges and opportunities that will determine the future of your congregation. So where exactly do we find the perfect church? Well, friends, it doesn't exist, at least not yet. As Charles Spurgeon has said, and I've repeated many times, the perfect church doesn't exist, and if it did, it would become an imperfect church as soon as I joined it. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you don't care much for church at all. Maybe a friend invited you or you come in from just passing along and all this church stuff seems really boring unengaged, like a bunch of people who can't find anything better to do with their time. Well, friend, you're right. There is nothing better. And I pray this morning by the end of our time together in the Bible, you'll come to at least long for the same thing. So with that said, we do actually have a compelling picture of what a healthy community, a compelling community is. And it's here In this book titled, The Early Church, Witnesses to the Resurrection of Christ. That's not what our Bibles say. It's the book entitled Acts, but that would be a good book to write someday. Uh, It would just be a commentary on the book of Acts. But we have it here. The Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles. And this summer we've been wrestling with what does it look like to be followers of Jesus in this world. We've found that... That God's people are those people who have responded to Jesus Christ. And they've responded to Jesus Christ by repenting, that is, turning from their sin. 
They have embraced him as the, the risen Savior who was once the suffering Messiah and is now the reigning king in heaven. And in coming to him, we've seen that they have received the blessing of a relationship that gives two things in the new covenant, two main things through the new covenant, the relationship with him. And it is the forgiveness of sin and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And to those who have been given this forgiveness, this gift of the Spirit dwelling inside of them, to them, they also receive another blessing. It is the blessing of community. It is the blessing of not being the only one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is the blessing of having a community that is marked out by Jesus and that is empowered by the Spirit. And so far, so far we've seen this community is a community centered around and shaped by the very Word of God, which for them was the Old Testament Scriptures proclaimed and taught by the apostles as Jesus commanded them to do in, Acts, I'm sorry, in Matthew 28. We've seen this community as a community that's also marked out by worshiping God. It's marked out by worshiping God through praise and, and through prayer lifted up together. And that's one of the key things that we see in this book over and over and over again is that when they pray, they do it together. Private prayer is awesome, but our evening prayer service starts this evening at 6. We've also seen this community is marked out by friendship, by fellowship together. It's this word you'll often hear it attached to different ministries, a Greek word, koinonia. It's this idea of fellowship, of deep, true friendship, both in public and private. They are together in the synagogues and in one another's homes. This is what we saw a few weeks ago in Acts 2, 42 through 47. But there's one more aspect to this new community that I didn't mention. Do you remember it? In Acts 2, 44, we read, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's exactly what we see fleshed out in our text today. So go ahead and grab a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts 4, 32. If you didn't bring your Bible or you don't have your own Bible, that's okay. We got some there in the pews in front of you. I invite you to grab one of those pew Bibles and turn to Acts 4, 32. If you're new to the Bible, that's cool. We're glad you're here. It'll be the Bible with us. Acts 4, 32 is on page 858. When you get there, just look for that little number 32. And that's where I'll be reading from in a moment. I say this every week, though. If you, if you don't have a Bible of your own or you have a friend or neighbor that doesn't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the foyer. We'd love for you to take one today for yourself or for someone else. Please take those and use them. Well, friends, let me invite you to stand once more with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll conclude my reading by saying this is the Word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying praise be to God. And this is the Word of the living God to us today from Acts 4.32 through 5.11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now, friends, as, as we jump back into Acts this morning, it's important to remember what has just taken place. To kind of build into the context of what's happening here in this passage. Luke does this thing in the story. And you're going to begin to see that it's kind of a reoccurring pattern where he'll zoom in on a certain time and a certain experience. And then he's going to zoom back out and describe the common happenings of the community. And that's what he's just done here. Last week, we saw him zoom in on the arrest and trial and eventual release of Peter and John after they had healed the crippled man and they had given testimony that it was actually Jesus who had healed this man. They were arrested. And then they were released. Now Luke zooms back out. And he gives us this picture of what's happening in the community. We're going to see him again, do it again next week. Peter and John again. Zoom back out to talk about some who had need. This is, this is still a group though that we see here. That is marked by and large by sharing. Or, or what happens when they're not sharing. That's what today's passage really holds out for us. So there's really two big sections of this sermon or this, this passage. And there's just going to be two points to my sermon today. If you want to write these down, feel more than welcome to. The first one is found in Acts 4, 32 through 37. And it is the blessing of giving. The blessing of giving. And then in Acts 5, 1 through 11, we see the curse of keeping. The curse of keeping. So the blessing of giving and the curse of keeping. And as we consider each of these this morning, friends, my prayer for us is that we wouldn't expect a perfect church, that we would be okay with, with imperfection in our church, but that we would instead grow into giving our lives away to see the body of believers built up around us. That our prayer and our hope and our work would not be for a perfect church, but would be for a growing, mature church. It's imperfect as we might be. So as we move to that end, let's consider just that as we look back at Acts 4, 32 through 37, consider this, this blessing of giving, the blessing of giving. Look back at verse 32 where it says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
We see now that this group of Jesus followers is continuing to grow. We've been seeing that the last few weeks. It started out with the 11, moved to the 120. At Pentecost, it moved to 3,000. And then after Peter and John and the healing of the crippled man, it moves to then 5,000. And so we see no longer that. It's just this small band of followers, but it's becoming very quickly a multitude. A multitude of people. And in a world where churches fall apart over what color to paint a wall... We are smacked in the head with these statements that this multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Don't don't miss that. But what does that phrase mean exactly? Today it sounds like it's just a sweet saying that you'd hear in a radio love song that, oh, me and my wife, we're of one heart and one soul. I pray that our marriages are like that. But it's a deep truth here given to the church. Speaking of the church, and it's really the foundation of this whole passage. It's the foundation of everything that we're about to see. Luke starts here by telling us that all the actions that are about to take place blossom out of a unity of heart. Meaning a unity not in that everyone is the exact same. We're going to see that here with Joseph in a minute. But that everyone had the same love, the same affection, the same devotion. To who? Well, to God and to one another. We see here the unity of heart and soul is in some ways a fulfillment of the greatest two commandments. That they have loved the Lord their God and they have loved their neighbor as themselves. That's what the expression one soul is really getting at. It's this proverbial saying of the time. And what it points to is real, true, deep, lasting friendship. Friendship. Dear friends, we're not... A substantially large church. But consider it from their point of view for a second. That you're a part of a congregation that's averaging about 5,000 people. Probably more, because you have people coming in all the time listening and hearing. And you have the women and the children that often were not tallied in those numbers. And yet they were of one heart and one soul. It's convicting, right? We see again and again that this early community, as imperfect as they were, with all the trials and the temptations that they have coming down the pipe at them, what marked them out more than anything else was their worship of God and their watching over one another. Friends, before we get much further, it's worth stopping and applying this to ourselves, to understanding what principles we can take from this. Because there's going to be a lot of practical applications for us But this one must be foundational. That if we are to be marked out as the people of God who are being used by Him to further His kingdom. Remember, this is one of the foundational truths about the book of Acts. That it is not us who builds the kingdom of God, but it is Jesus who builds His kingdom. That Jesus promises that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But He intends to use us as the bricks and the mortar that build His kingdom. If that is going to be so among us, that there are some things that must be true among us. And what should define us most? A love for Him and a love for one another. A devotion to Him and a devotion to one another. A commitment to following Him and helping one another do the same. That's what discipling someone and being discipled is all about. It is loving Jesus and helping the people in your life also love Him. This is exactly what they prayed for. Don't miss that. 
Don't miss the impact of a praying church here. Just back up in Acts 4, 29 through 30. And now, Lord, this is, this is the whole congregation with one voice praying. I'm assuming they have one person praying, but everybody's agreeing in their hearts. They're praying. And now, Lord, look upon the, their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Friends, as we read these things in Acts 4, we may think, oh, this is common. I mean, these are, you know, they had all things in common, but, but, but it's, it's not a big deal. It's, it's not that hard. Don't miss it. And we see this really painted forth well with the signs and wonder of Ananias and Sapphira's judgment. That God working to unite a people together to be of one heart and one soul, that is a miracle. That is a sign and a wonder that they would do that. And friends, if, if God is willing to do that among us, what a sign and a wonder to our culture. Where it's all about me, myself, and I, and I got to get mine. This united rejoicing of one heart and one soul is what has marked the followers of the risen Jesus since the beginning. We find way back, we read in Acts 2, 44 through 46, where the first mention of this idea that they had everything in common. Back then, I pushed our focus away from thinking about uh, possessions because I knew we were going to get here to kind of expanding this idea of being of one heart and one mind and having all things in common and, and meaning our very lives, our time, our energy, but now we see that Luke drives it home here. Luke builds this out even more in verse 34. Look there. He says this. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This idea of, of no needy people literally means that, that there's no lack in the community. That there's no lack in their community. And we see there how exactly they made sure that this happened. They shared with one another. Primarily through selling their land and their houses. Which pushes us a bit into our own context a little bit more, doesn't it? Because to understand fully what's happening here. We need to understand that, that those who owned houses in that time. It fell into the, the middle class and the upper class. The middle class consisted of maybe 10% of the population. The, the upper class consisted maybe of 4 to 7% of the population. And those were the people who owned land. And those were the people who owned houses. So, so at the most, 17%. Out of 100 people, 17 of them were fulfilling this. And yet we see here what they were doing with these pieces of property. It's really startling to consider for some of us in our modern me, me, mine, mine culture. But we learn that a thriving community here is marked not just by poor people or by rich people or by those who are somewhere in between. But a God, God focused, God were looking people from all sorts of economic backgrounds. At the same time, we learn that. None of these statuses are inherently sinful. I think we can tend to think that maybe if we fall more on the, the poor end of the spectrum, that, that all those rich people, they're snobs, they're, they're sinful. 
Or if you're on this end of the spectrum, well, all the poor folks, they, they don't get it. They're sinful. But we see here in this early community that both existed. That both existed here. And just because you may be uneducated or you may financially struggle doesn't necessarily mean that you're in sin. And just because you're overeducated and you have a well-paying job and you own a home doesn't necessarily mean you're in sin. The test of sin here is not how much you have or how little you have, but what you're willing to do with what you have. These members of this new movement are selling what they have and bringing the proceeds to the community as represented by the apostles who, who oversee the distribution of the resources. We see here a beautiful picture of what, what a pastor, elder, overseer will become. One who, who oversees, who manages, who gives guidance to the affairs of the community. The thing that marks out this community is not that they were selling their stuff, though, but that they were caring for one another. And I think that for those of us who have grown up in the church or heard this preached and taught before, that tends to be the focus that gets pushed here. And I, I don't want that to be the focus. It's all about them selling their stuff. That, that, that's happening. And that's true. And some of us need to be doing that. Some of us need to be sharing with one another in these ways. But the reason why is what's most important here. It's because of their love for God, yes, but also because they cared about one another. This is wrapped up in that phrase used in verse 32 back there at the beginning. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What we see here is that, that what is prized most among the early believers is not their stuff, but their relationships. Their worth was not wrapped up in what they owned, but in who owned them. That is God. And who they belonged to. That is his people. Giving away their possessions was just a means to the end of displaying that, to, to living it out. But why would they do such a thing, you might ask? Why would they do such a thing? I mean, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And you think, see, I knew these Christians were just going to bamboozle me in here to try to get my money. It's not what we're doing. Friends, this is not Christian communism. We should not expect that some just giant pot of money that we give everything to and people can come and they have their Waverly Place Baptist Church debit card and they just slide it. This is a picture of what the gospel is and what the gospel does. If you're here today and your biggest question about this text is why and how could people live like this? The answer is that living like this is the natural outworking of people who have been loved like this. Living like this is the way of people who have been transformed by the beauty of Jesus Christ. Is it not exactly what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians 8, 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for his, your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And what do we find Luke telling us? That this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, seen in his leaving the glories of heaven and the presence of the Father coming and living in the poverty of a sin-stricken world and then dying a humiliating, gruesome death so that He might lavish on us the glory and the joy and the mercy of salvation in all its richness. 
Showing us the promise of new life through his resurrection. That all of this grace that we receive in being his people had transformed their hearts and their souls and bound them together. Is that not what verse 33 says? And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So as you might be sitting there thinking, why are they being like this? Or maybe you even ask yourself, how can I be more like this? Here's the answer. The community that has richly received is a community that then richly gives. A person who has been washed over in the riches of God's kindness in Jesus Christ is a person who will freely give away so that they can care for his body. I think one of the reasons we see this as a thread that runs throughout not just the book of Acts, but throughout Christian history, is because Christians through the ages have realized that this is not our home and that this is not actually our stuff. That all this stuff that we have, that we love to fill up storage lockers with, all this stuff has been given to us by God himself. And he intends us to do something with it. And what's more, that this stuff, it's all going to fall apart in the end. And this is not our home. I think one of the reasons that, that it has so marked God's people for so long is because we know that we're headed somewhere else. That we have a foundation somewhere else. That we have an inheritance and a treasure somewhere else. And I, say, I think we see it particularly here. And it's it's worth going back and reading this passage in context this week because it's couched between these two passages about persecution. You get that? What did these early believers come to see above all else? As they are put on trial, as they are beaten, as they are threatened, as they have their very possessions plundered, they see that this world and its kingdoms are not their home. That my house is not my home. That this stuff is not my inheritance. That this money is not my treasure. And in this world, as, as the old spiritual says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. What do these early believers teach us that the gospel is that the gospel changes us down to the very core. And what we see here is that our love for each other and giving away and serving one another, our love for each other, is a visible sign that we grasp the love of an invisible God. Friends, if you're a Christian, can you say that this defines how you feel about the other Christians you're in community and relationship with? Are you close enough To know? Are you close enough to care? Are you aware of the needs in the community of believers that you've committed yourself to? Parents, this is a great application of this passage. Have you taken up to teach your children in this way that it is truly more blessed to give than receive? Or is every time somebody's over at your house, 
Your kid says, ah, he can't play with my toy. Smack. Are we teaching our children to share? Are we willing to give up those things that we hold close so that we can practically love and care for and serve the needs of others? And it's a good place to to make note because it comes up several times in this text, this phrase, at the apostles' feet. It's where they lay down their money and the set made from the selling of their possessions. What does this signify? It signifies this joyful entrusting and submitting of the community to those who are overseeing and caring for their souls. We see here that the community was so impacted by the word of God. Remember, the apostles are giving testimony with power. And they've been so impacted by the spiritual care that these apostles had shown for them that they're totally fine giving the financial care to them as well. So let's move now to consider Luke's examples. It might be worth considering if you're a Christian, and especially a member of this church, as we move to considering these examples, how you're doing in this area. Where might there be sin that needs to be repented of? Where might there be perhaps a keeping of your needs to yourself? So, y'all probably thought I was going to go to, why aren't you giving enough? No, let me, let me go this direction first. Is there a need for repentance here that maybe you're not showing your neediness? Have you made your needs known? Let's go the other direction then. If you know the needs of the people in your life, are you seeking to meet them in any way that you can? This is one of the reasons as a church we have a benevolence fund that we've put together to help those who, who fall into crisis financially. But I don't want us as a church to, to look at that fund as the primary way that we fulfill the call here of this passage. It always brings me great joy to, to hear and to see the ways that people are just meeting needs behind closed doors. So let me encourage, continue, encourage you to continue in that direction. Is there a hoarding of your wealth to be spent on your own desires or wants? Or are you willing to give it away? You know, friends, when the Bible speaks of love... When the Bible speaks of loves, it measures it primarily not in how much you want to receive, but how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone else. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time and emotions and resources are you willing to invest for this person, these people? To drive this truth home, this is exactly what we see in this man Joseph in verses 36 through 37. We see, we're told here that that Joseph was a Jew, though he's not from Jerusalem, he's from Cyprus, but he's still a Levite. They were the tribe within Israel, were often very well educated and wealthy. Many of them became priests, but that doesn't seem to be the case here for Joseph. And so Joseph isn't how people commonly know this man, though. In fact, this Joseph becomes one of the driving heroes of Luke's story of the early church. Except he is known more commonly by the name the apostles called him. Barnabas. Verse 36 tells us that the apostles called him Barnabas. Literally, son of consolation. Son of encouragement. Fun fact, Bible trivia. Barnabas is referred to over 20 times in the book of Acts. 
But here's the question. How does he get this nickname? How does, how does he get the nickname of Barnabas? Well, Joseph was a really common name, so maybe he needed a nickname. But I don't think that's it. I think this very well might be the reason he's called Barnabas. Because what does he do? He sells a piece of land and brings the proceeds to the apostles' feet. This man Barnabas, from one of the hand-picked tribes of God, well-educated, wealthy, and well-to-do, sells his land to give it to those who have not. Ministry over money is his mindset. We should be spurred on and encouraged here. Because this is just one example of the kingdom of people that the gospel creates. No longer just the Levite. No longer just a landowner. No longer just educated or elite or rich. But he's Barnabas. Son of the Most High. Son of encouragement. See, see our world's history, friends, if, if you study history at all, you know that there is a long story of tribal conflict. Whether that is in the tribes of the Middle East or the tribes of Africa or the tribes that we somehow build here in America. There's conflict That happens because your tribe is closer than family. But now we find one critical exception. Over being a Levite. Over being a man from Cyprus. Over being a Jew. Over being well educated or wealthy. We see in the local church. That when two people share Christ. Even if everything else is different. They are closer than even blood ties could ever bring them. They are the family of God. As, as John says in 1 John 2, this is a love for the brethren. Unity, friends, does not come natural because we often like to go our own way and satisfy our own appetites. But those who share the goal of reflecting the unity and reconciliation that Jesus alone can bring, there is a desire to be sure that this body, this church, reflects His goals through Corporate care. So we find that when the church is captured here by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they will display and witness to the power of Jesus by becoming a compelling community that willingly shares and gives so that everyone in the community is cared for. And I want you to notice that in particular. I think it's wonderful for us to support outside ministries of this church, for us to love our neighbors and to support those who are falling upon hard times in our culture, in our society, in our city. That's wonderful. But there's a particular care here for the household of faith. That's the blessing of giving. But what of the curse of keeping? Luke highlights this in the second section in Acts 5, 1 through 11. Look back there with me now. What we find in these verses really is is two parallel stories that run in tandem with one another. You have this couple... Ananias and Sapphira each come before the apostles with a portion of the money from the field that they sold. They have Peter's questions and rebukes. Following that, you have their judgment and death. And finally, you have the community's response. So let's look at each of those kind of paired up together. Like Barnabas, we have this couple. They sell a piece of land, just like Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira, which which is interesting, just kind of a side note of what their names mean. Because we're told that Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. Luke doesn't tell us what Ananias and Sapphira mean. It may be helpful for you to know, though. Ananias, Ananias means the Lord is gracious. And Sapphira means beauty. So you have this couple, the Lord is gracious and beauty. 
We seem to display none of those, none of the such. Unless, of course, you think God's judgment upon them is God being gracious to the community and displaying the beauty of his judgment. This scene plays out just like it has been described in these previous verses, but with one stark exception. Although the couple claims to have sold a field and set the entire proceeds before the apostles, they have lied together and kept some of the money for themselves. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now what do we find here? Well, whereas we found last week that Satan tries to thwart the kingdom of God outside, we now find Satan is beginning to try to thwart the kingdom of God from the inside. It's an ongoing pattern that begins to emerge. And he does this through this couple who have sold this land and kept some of the money back. But Peter makes it clear here that them keeping some of the money for themselves was not the issue. Okay? You see there in verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This is not the issue, though. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? He could have done with it whatever he felt like doing. So what's really the issue here? I think a lot of times we graze passages over like this and don't fully wrap our minds around the heart of the issue. And and when we do that, unfortunately, we find ourselves falling into Satan's same trap. What's going on in the hearts of this couple that ultimately leads to God's hand of judgment upon them? Well, it's it's a theological truth that we see carried out throughout the Bible that at its core, every problem that presents itself in a Christian's life and in the local church, every sin at its root somewhere comes from unbelief. Peter says to Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Have you not lied to man but to God? Later, when speaking to Sapphira in verse 9, he builds on it. He says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? The root of their problem is that they have not trusted the Lord in their selling and their keeping and their value before him and the community. They have lied to God and they have lied to Peter so that they seem like they are some sold out ones among the community. While at the same time keeping back some of the money because of a distrust that God will actually provide for them. It may be stunning to us here. But when we get to the root of it, do we not see how easily we could be reflected here? That that we can cut corners, fudge the numbers, skew the details to make ourselves seem more pious and holy than we really are. That we hide the reality of who we are from one another and even try to hide who we are from God himself. And for Ananias and Sapphira, we find that when money and possessions are our greatest treasure and pleasure... It will cause us to become deceitful and selfish, unsubmissive, and will ultimately bring the discipline of the Lord upon us. Friends, he will not give his glory to another. And this is exactly what we see happen. Look back at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
Now, these things may strike you as cold or harsh on the part of God, but we must understand what God is displaying for us. See, see Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What we see here, that it is not enough to know the God that we worship, but we must also know how he intends for us to worship him. Is that not the first two commandments that we're given out of the ten? Is that the root of the issue at Ananias and Sapphira's heart? That they have attempted to worship God with deceit and without faith. God has always been in the agenda. Uh, God has always been in the business of setting the agenda for how he is worshipped. You read about Joshua 7. That the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. So he takes them for himself. He was not supposed to. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. We would later read in response to this that Joshua gets together with the people of God. And in Joshua 7, 25, it says, And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Accor. Do we not read of God's judgment in 2 Samuel 6? That as they're returning the Ark of the Covenant from being captured by the Philistines, they're coming back and they're joyful and they're celebrating and there's the tambourines and they're dancing along. They stumble. The oxen that's carrying the Ark stumbles. And Uzzah reaches out to grab the Ark to... Keep it from falling. We read in 2 Samuel 6, 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Friends, we should not take lightly the worship of the one true God. And we should check our hearts and determine what it is that we need to bring before him in confession and repentance. What took place then, what takes place in our text today is a splash of cold water to remind us again that our worship of the Lord is something that is sacred and it is set apart. It is something that marks out the community of God, making it different from any other kind of fellowship in the entire universe. Where shady business deeds and deceitful maneuvers may be the everyday occurrence in your office, it is not in the family of God. In the life of the community, worshiping something other than him, even if it's ourselves, as it were, is nothing less than treason. While God may show mercy and not strike you dead, your sin will have consequences. And the hardening of your heart, the searing of your conscience will drive you from him and from his people. God's open hatred for false goodness ought to drive us to ask how we sometimes play the hypocrite in our own lives. Do we choose what church ministries to be a part of based on how public they are? When we evangelize or serve, do our hearts veer towards considering how much such activities will will build our spiritual resume? Do we think we're more good if our devotional time are longer than those that we sit in a pew next to? How are we motivated by appearance more than worship? And now you might ask, was not the judgment 
upon the husband enough? Why didn't God vindicate his name? Why Sapphira also? Well, friends, not only was she part of the plot and plan, but it's worth noting for the married men among us that our sin never stays home and our leadership is always at work. Married brothers, know this for certain. In your hearts, in your actions, in your words, you are either leading your wives into the peaceful clearing of God's pleasure or into the rotting grave of God's discipline. Don't take it lightly. May we run far from being husbands like Ananias. But how? How can we protect from such sin and deceit? and Such sin of love of self. How do we move from being self-preservationists to community edifiers? Friends, again, it comes through being captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A cold heart that does not love God and does not love God's people suggests one of two things. Either it has never been forgiven or it has forgotten the depths to which it was forgiven. In fact, much of our growth in Christ is simply growth in understanding what Christ has done for us. Friends, again, this is the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And it is the only way that we can truly be changed. Books on church organization are cool. Seminaries are a gift. Denominations can even be helpful. And while a perfect church, at least for now, cannot be found, Christ-saturated, God-exalting, Spirit-empowered churches can and do exist. They exist when the people of God are submitted to the word of God out of love for the glory of God. They exist when God's people have seen the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Who came and did not hold anything back but freely gave himself, all of himself, drinking to the very last drop the wrath of God for our sakes. And when they are captivated by it, they cannot help but love in the way that he loved. And the church that sees that, that knows that, that is captured by it, well, well, the entire Spurgeon quote goes like this. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, It is the dearest place on earth to us. I love our church. That is you people. I thank God for you all and for the fellowship and our labor together in the gospel for the sake of Christ our Savior. My constant prayer is that we would have hearts knit together so tightly that no distraction or worldly pursuit could restrain or hinder us from loving and serving one another. Perfect? No. Dearest place on earth? I hope so. Friends, my prayer is the same for us as well. Let us pray. Father, we do come before you praying and asking that you would knit us together, that we would not count anything that we have as more precious than knowing you and being a part of your people. Change us and mold us and shape us by the gospel. Even now as we look to baptism, Would you show us how wonderful it is to be a follower of you and to be a follower of you alongside 
your people. Shepherd us, God, as the sheep of your pastor. And grow us in grace, humility, kindness, love for one another. Would you do this for your own glory? In Jesus' name, amen.